Hi, I'm Alexis Alexander, and this is The Off-Duty Diplomat, a podcast about the 10 years I worked for the U.S. Department of State. Welcome, everyone, to the fourth installment on the Israel Explainer series precipitated by the attack that happened on October 7th. I am Alexis, uh, and I am here with Fallon. Hello. In a onesie. (laughs) (laughs) There she is. Um, And it is the week of January the 1st. It's the first week of the new year, 2024. Uh, Anyway, y'all, we are... (laughs) Actually, now, what, two months and some change, probably almost 12 weeks out from the start of this conflict. We did a series of explainers on the background of this conflict in the region, understanding what options for peacemaking have been in the past, and then finally wrapping in sort of the global security order, specifically with regard to the nuclear situation and how all of that plays into and defines what we're seeing happen on the ground today. At the start of the conflict, I believe both sides had casualties hovering around 500 people as of our first report. And as of today, more than 20,000 Palestinians have been killed Mm -hmm. to that same sort of 500 on the Israeli side. In addition, we're still looking at over 100 hostages still being held by Hamas. Um, The Israelis are conducting a very aggressive aerial bombing campaign, both in the north and the south of Gaza. Currently, Mm. they've destroyed a lot of critical infrastructure and continue to do so. Even while the hostages, it is assumed, are being held in a series of underground tunnels that have been built over 15 years. They're also guessing that's where a lot of Hamas leadership is hiding, even though I believe I saw today that one there was a targeted blast in, I want to say, Syria that I think killed one of the Hamas leaders also. But as with any insurgency group, uh, command tends to be decentralized. So you kill one leader and then another one pops up, which is why the mm. plan of attack is usually not that productive with those types of military groups. And, you know, we touched on this, I think, very briefly in our number two explainer, Everybody Wants a Peace, uh, where... There's been some extensive reporting by the New York Times on the um, gender-based violence, specifically the sex crimes, rape as a tool of warfare that has been used against Israeli women who were killed as well as attacked on October 7th itself. So if you have interest in that topic, if you want to learn more about it, if you Mm want to hear sort of about that level and type of atrocity, I highly recommend you go and check out their reporting. It's extremely extensive. It's also extremely graphic. So if you don't have the stomach or heart to read that in this particular moment, I totally hear you. I very much understand that. But I do think it's important to call out the gendered aspects of who pays the toll of this kind of violence. And also because I think, you know, it's easy for people to essentialize what's happening as either, you know, purely a terrorist action against a you know, an innocent country to their, you know, one of their neighbors or Mm. to sort of frame this as sort of this noble, completely blameless uh, freedom fighter group against a horrible, oppressive overlord. And I, I like it when our reporting creates some balance to that narrative, because if you are truly fighting for your freedom and for freedom from oppression, what you're not doing is committing gratuitous rapes against your enemy. And I just 
want to make sure that we call that out, or at least that I call it out, because I think that's an important dimension to consider. Uh, with that in hand, first, let me pause here and see if Fallon has anything to say. I feel like this is how our episodes always go. You let me like rant on monologue for like a good four minutes. And then I remember I've been talking too long and I'm like, hey, Fallon, <laughs> do you want to say anything? <laughs> Uh, uh, uh. Hey, well, I mean, look, this is not my area of expertise. And as I said, right before we hopped on here, I haven't I've dipped out of the news on this because it felt wild um, and I'm solutions oriented. And I think today we're going to talk solutions. So it's hard for me to see an end when I think everybody seems to be digging in their heels and just yelling. And to me, that's not really productive. That's also not how I like to spend my time and energy. So I don't know. Listening to that just made me tired again. But um, because, I mean, you know, that's the nature of war. It's exhausting. And this type of war, going back to a couple episodes ago where we talked about like territories fighting, um, nations fighting, da 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 da. Like we kind of called it that the one versus the three. This is kind of how it goes. And I'm just sad. I'm sad that we're still here almost three months later talking about this because eh, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Well said. No, well said. You're absolutely right. It is exhausting. I think when you look at the magnitude of life already lost and the fact that I believe it's the UN is reporting that roughly half of the inhabitants of Gaza, something like 2 million people are on the brink of starvation right now. Those are like really sobering, terrible numbers when you talk about the human toll of these conflicts. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and especially when you consider we've only been monitoring this for like 90 days, you know, and like 90 days, we went from zero to 100. Right. Um, and I think that that like. Yeah. You read my mind like real quick. It's a it's a scary and sad timeline. Yeah. Yeah. The escalation of it to me, the scope and scale. Well, and then every picture that I actually see, because like on the one hand, I'm like, OK, strategy brain. If you're Israel, you have to keep trying to find these people. You kind of just have to. I think we all, everybody has opinions about how they're going about it. I'll just say that. Um, but it's difficult to watch or see the images thinking of Gaza of like what it actually looks like after all those bombs happen. Right. It's just like rubble. And that's, that's tough. That is tough. It's tough to see for sure. You know, and I think for any of us who were, at least even tangentially aware of what was happening in the early mid nineties, both in Somalia, the former Yugoslavia in Rwanda, mm. you know, you grow up with a lot of that storytelling around you about atrocities and how we can't let these things happen and how the international community either massively fumbled or turned a blind eye or did both of those things. And I think what we've seen online is people really grappling with this feeling that we should be doing something. This should not be happening. Yeah. And also very yeah. much, I guess, realizing how our analog systems for power and warfare are still very much the driving engine, even in a hugely digital age when it comes to information mm -hmm. and commerce and all kinds of other mechanisms. The fact of the matter is you we have not yet been able to stop conflict through no. social media. 
uh, or through, you know, so I, I think there's this real people coming to terms with the, where the balance of power actually exists in the modern world, even though we have all this information, but that doesn't mean we necessarily have more control. No. And that's kind of a scary and dangerous thing. Cause it's almost like, you know, to have information overload to an ignorant mind or a spirit who can't handle the weight of that information. Like that's, it could, it has the potential to be catastrophic. Because I, I think and that's why the level of discourse that I'm seeing is really, really tough for me because it feels like these visceral emotional reactions that are being yelled into a void under the guise of awareness. Some actually good, some actually not. It's difficult to figure out like who's reputable, what's a credible source too, because since everybody, everybody wants a piece, everybody got a mic. Um, including us, honestly. So it's difficult, at least for me. I'm like, I don't even know where to start. I hear that. Um, and I, I think that's where a lot of people are. I would say, you know, from my perspective, I guess the one way I would frame people who are taking in information like this, and obviously this is not going to be the last conflict or war or violent uprising mm-hmm. our world sees. Unfortunately, that is very much the nature of how we have related to each other since we started relating to each other <laughs> as human beings. So this is not the last time we're going to experience something like this. And what I would say is I think mm-hmm. I, I want to always keep us focused. And I think you kind of brought us back there already in this conversation, Fallon, on the human toll and the human aspect of what's going on. I think, you know, as much as people want to be upset or as much as you are maybe triggered by reading the news of what's going on, I would really encourage you to focus on sort of the individuals and the stories Mm. that they are trying to tell and that they want told and heard. The government stuff, if you are someone who has particular interest in that, by all means, feel free to consume it. But just know that to me is the least interesting part Mm -hmm. of what's happening and the least valuable part. And the part that deserves the least amount of our attention. And so, you know, if you are feeling like, hey, I'm revved up about this. I really want to do something. I'd like to be useful to the people of Gaza and or to, you know, the other victims involved in this conflict. Mm. Highly recommend you go back and listen to the end of our number two explainer, where I give you some very practical things that you can do as an individual that will would make a difference for those people. If, you know, if you felt like doing some advocacy work, if you're not in that space and you're doing your best to process, then I also really respect that. It's very dark and very horrible. And, you know, we all have a capacity for how much we can take. And I guess with that, what I really wanted to do with this episode is talk about what a potential end game looks like that would be positive. Uh, (laughs) It was really difficult when sifting through all of the news that's out there currently about this situation to Think of what else we could possibly say about this that would, number one, be useful. And number two, wouldn't be absolutely depressing Yeah, to listen to. (laughs) So on the heels of our nuclear conversation, which is probably the most, the darkest thing we've ever talked about on the mic, I wanted to break this down from a Mm. post-conflict peace and justice perspective and talk about kind of how these conflicts come to an end. So I just mentioned former Yugoslavia, Somalia, Rwanda. Those are kind of big hallmark moments for post-conflict justice and peacekeeping becoming part of the global conversation. They came about in the sort of post-Cold War era. And this is a time period where the Western states were really focused on this international framework wherein there is a responsibility to protect so that 
the stronger states, the more stable, the more prosperous have a responsibility to intervene when there is chaos, catastrophe, breakdown um, in less stable, less prosperous parts of the world. Mm. And a lot of that comes directly out of our experiences, like I said, in the former Yugoslavia and in Rwanda. So I wanted to take a lot of the information I have, not only academically, but also from my time at the United Nations and the Department of Peacekeeping Operations and talk about what uh, international partners uh, and also international organizations would be doing mm. if and when this conflict comes to an end. Fallon, any anything to add there? No, I'm looking forward to going on this journey. Like I said, I'm solutions oriented. I need a bright side uh, in these dark and trying times. So if if you got that for me, I'm ready. Let's go. Dope. We're ready because you know what? Everything comes to an end eventually. And this conflict too yes. will end at some point. And I want this to have a happy ending. <laughs> I want it to have a happy ending. Oh my God. We are going to write that happy ending, Fallon. We are going to live in that happy ending. We are going to come up with a beautiful potential plan for them to follow. And, uh, and maybe that will make us feel a little bit better about how things are going. I mean, so far they've low-key been listening. Have they? <laughs> They've low key been listening. So let's let's well, what I, I mean, let's do some alchemy <laughs> on the on the mic. <laughs> I mean, what I will say is I have been really happy to see so far international partners putting a lot of pressure on the Israeli government to define an end game, which is exactly what I said in episode two. As long as the quote unquote yeah. goal of this war is to eliminate Hamas, this war can go on forever because it's an insurgent group. Um, which can include literally anyone, which is the point of insurgency and decentralized militarism. It's it's impossible to defeat because you can't cop the head off the dragon because 10 more will grow in its place. So and that's a lot of what they have been seeing happen. Isn't that like a hydra? That is literally the hydra. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Yar. And so uh, I broke it down into four different dimensions to consider with any conflict that's coming to a close. So the first dimension is military. Mm. The second dimension is political. And the third dimension is social. And I put in a fourth dimension just because of this particular conflict. You can, I mean, it's kind of dealer's choice how much the fourth dimension actually comes into play here. But the fourth one I included is spiritual because at least on the face, part of this conflict is about this quote unquote alleged clash of, you know, faith in the space. Ooh. Uh, yes, I agree with this. So all of those are dimensions that need to be considered. Yeah. Anything else? Any? Do you think I missed anything there? No, I don't think so. But if I think of it, I will yell it at you. <laughs> Please do. Please do. Uh, OK, so kind of kicking off with the military dimension. So let's say that tomorrow They agree, both parties, let's say the Israeli government and Hamas agree to a ceasefire. So the first thing that happens Mm -hmm. or would happen in this case is they would need some kind of peacekeeping presence that would be international. And this is where the first place you would get the international partners, because the UN manages all international peacekeeping on behalf of the global community. So this is highly unlikely to occur. Uh, But in the event that the Israeli government and Hamas invited the UN to be the sort of impartial arbiter, the UN would send peacekeeping troops to sort of manage the space between the two combatants. Um, And normally when we call in peacekeeping troops, their first goal is to sort of maintain a, a status quo. 
so that peace negotiations can start. Because what you you don't ever want people to be negotiating while people are still shooting, because that continues to change the calculus of what's happening. And what you want to do first is create a, a stoppage to additional violence so that people can have a discussion without there being new factors added. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, someone else is killed, something else is destroyed. That also has to be added into the calculus. So the first thing is yeah. to get to a uh, stop. Ooh. And in the history of this region, the stoppages ha- that have happened in the past have been violated by both sides, question mark, if my memory is serving me correctly. Because we've tried ceasefires because we've been fighting here since, you know, Hector was a puppy. And <laughs> so I'm curious about the history of ceasefires. That's the first question that comes to mind. And like whether or not they've been respected in the past um, by everybody over there. And then the other question that came to mind was, what is the UN doing right now? Like they haven't been like formally invited to, to the tea party, but like, what are they doing right now in, in lieu of that invitation? To, to my knowledge, currently the UN's biggest role that they've played so far, at least since October 7th, has been around trying to get humanitarian aid into Gaza So that's really more the aid part of the organization that has been Mm. much more active um, than, let's say, the Department of Peacekeeping Operations. So peacekeeping is a totally separate function of the U.N. It operates under the National Security or the sorry, the U.N. Security Council. um, And that's completely separate from the aid part of the organization. But the aid part is the one Mm. that's been the most active right now. Uh, just because of how desperate the humanitarian situation has been on the ground. So Mm -hmm. the idea of a ceasefire that I'm talking about with respect to the military dimension here would be like specifically so that part two, which is the political discussions can start taking place. So in order to do that, you have to have people stop shooting. Got it. The second thing is you asked (laughs) who has been violating the the ceasefires in the past. And that is a... Uh, I will give you the most irritating possible answer. It really depends on who you ask. Uh, I'm sure each side would argue that the other has violated. Uh, See, I figured it was something annoying like that. Violated the ceasefires, but 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 that's why I I had to ask. The reason most of the ceasefires have failed in the past (laughs) is because number one, some of the players at the table have been playing a deeper game, and it got away from them. And I mean that both on the Israeli and the Palestinian side. And I mean this with respect to like previous peace talks that have been happening. So the real famous oh. ones that people are going to talk about are like the Camp David talks. Right. I would argue both sides tried to outjockey each other and they both yep. fell short. Um, and I think on top of that, you know what? I'm just going to say it. Um, the leaders of both mm-hmm. sides have been, I think you could argue, have been uh, in some ways very short-sighted and self-interested in the way they have handled negotiations in the past. Oh. To the point where, you know, you can't you can't play chicken with somebody who has nothing to lose. And both sides, I think, have really not made much use of their opportunities to come to real agreements. And there's been a lot of backbiting and chicanery on both sides, I would throw out there. Ooh. Uh, and I know I'm saying this so diplomatically and so cryptically, but I'm just like, y'all, do you know how Mm. extensive the storytelling is about the games that the (laughs) leadership have played with each other over the past 40 years? It's ridiculous. And all the secret (laughs) deals and handshakes and, you know, oh, this group, that group, like 
No, everybody thought they could out jockey the other side if they waited long enough and if they held their cards and all they've done is create a much more desperate and entrenched situation. And that's where we are today. Right. So getting back to dimension number one, which is military, you need the peacekeeping presence to get people to stop shooting at each other on the ground. Ideally, also the peacekeepers are the ones making sure that there is Mm. order on the ground in Gaza because in this theoretical scenario, Hamas is mm. the government has been removed, which means there's no governing body. There's no police. There's no any security authority. Yep. It's complete chaos, complete martial law, theoretically. Therefore, you got to have somebody on the ground. And then the most sort of idealistic conception of international peacekeeping, the idea of the peacekeeper is to literally keep the peace in space of what would be a functioning government. Uh, The other big aspect you get when it comes to the military part of the end of a conflict is what we call DDR. And I do not mean Dance Dance Revolution, uh, which is so funny because (laughs) I was doing research on this. The first thing that comes up with DDR is Dance Dance Revolution. Mm. And that did not used to be the case when I was studying it. So it's like funny to see how the culture has moved. So DDR in this context stands... Oh, yo. And they're having like random. Oh, sorry. I was going to do a random like non sequitur Internet shit. No, go ahead. Do it. Do it. Uh, So recently there's been a resurgence of people like doing the choreography of those dance games again and posting them on social. Like the poison dance was fire. (laughs) I don't know if you ever played it, but like the poison it was so good anyway continue sorry (laughs) i did not i did not no i uh, thank you uh i just thought it was so i mean it was kind of funny for me because it's like when you say like ssm if you're in a certain community ssm means one thing if you're in another community ssm means another thing it don't mean nothing to me you know so in the context i'm talking about it i was listening to this podcast and it's about um wellness, like debunking wellness trends. And they were talking about SSM and that what they meant was the movie supersize me. Oh, I was not going to get that. But if you're like, if you were in politics, yeah, if you were in like politics at all in the last like 30 years, SSM is like same sex marriage. Oh, shit. <laughs> so it's like okay. using which acronym, you know? Hilarious. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's kind of the same thing with DDR. But in this context, long way around, DDR stands <laughs> for disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration. Mm. And that's what you want to do when you have, normally, especially when you have non-government um, combatants, so people who are not part of an official military, so like militia members, so like people in Hamas, mm-hmm. you need them to disarm, which is get rid of their weapons, demobilize, which is exit the military organization itself. And then reintegrate, which is seek a new form of livelihood moving forward that is no longer associated with the previous paramilitary group. Uh, And a DDR process is a big part of any conflict in that's not between two governments. And since this one, as you pointed out earlier, is a one versus three, meaning a non-state actor versus a nuclear power, uh, the non-state actor definitely is going to have to DDR uh, at the end of this. So Hamas would have to give their weapons over. So I guess let me let me play that back for you and try to ground it in what I think is going to have to happen with the actual people we talk about. So Israel would have to stop bombing stuff. They wouldn't have to mm-hmm. give their bombs or guns away. They would just have to stop shooting. Like put your guns in your pocket. Exactly. Okay. 
Okay. And then Hamas would have to give, like literally give their weapons to Israel or the UN or whoever's in the middle uh, mediating. Yeah. They have to turn, oh, like, hey, yes. here's my guns. You take them. Um, what about the hostages? Because Hamas is not a government and you can't. Right. You can DDR with a government to an extent, but a country government doesn't really DDR. DDR is mostly for Nazis. That's what actors, I'm saying. That's what I'm yeah. saying. I'm like, Israel is not about to be like, okay, here's your Iron Dome, kids. <laughs> you can have it back. We're not going to use it. No, they're not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> they're not going to nope. do that. No, they so, won't. Okay. And frankly, Hostages. no one would ask them to do it. Yeah. So uh, thank well, you. That brings I mean, me on to dimension number two. And the first thing I have. Wait, wait, wait. My other question. Hostages. Yeah, yeah. Go for oh, it. Oh, good. Okay. I was just like, what about my hostages? Okay, cool. So, all right. So at this point, Hamas's guns are with the UN question mark. They are in the process of disarming, but. Let's okay. now pivot because a lot of this has to happen simultaneously. Um, only okay. some of this would happen consecutively. But at the same time that there's a peacekeeping presence, we're stopped firing. People are putting down their guns because the focus of this fight allegedly is the elimination of Hamas, period. I think it stands to reason that they would have to disarm in order for there to be an effective peace process, just because I don't see. Yeah. The Israeli government even sitting down at the table to negotiate with Hamas. Like you have not, we have not seen any reporting on the Israeli government negotiating with Hamas directly. We've seen information uh -uh. about third parties intervening. We've yeah. seen information about local states intervening, but not a direct one-to-one -one sit down. So mm -mm. that's where I'm at right there. Mm. So, yeah, they would have to give over the guns or the hostages or both. The hostages to me are part of the larger peace negotiation. For one thing, because we've now been at this for 90 days and they still have over 100 hostages still mm. in Hamas control. That is wild. Like, I do not understand why How many hostages have, they have not been bartered back. Probably close to 80. 80 right. Yeah. Like, why, why are only half of them... Back. Like even less than half, frankly. That's strange to me. I mean, if I'm thinking about this truly from a strategy perspective and like not thinking about anything else, if Hamas gives the people away, there's nothing to stop Israel from continuing to do what it's doing. And now they're really done. But there's nothing stopping Israel from doing it anyway. That is also true. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like this was a gambit on October 7th. And when you and I did our first recording, my thought was, okay. They've done this so that mm -hmm. Israel will not go all in on raising Gaza to the ground with bombs. And what have they done? <laughs> Gone all in on raising Gaza to the ground with bombs. That place has mm. been destroyed. I mean, you were the one who just were mentioning the pictures, which are Girl. of utter destruction, like nothing Ugh. but rubble in spaces. It was... I, and that's yeah, it's like, hard to watch. And that's with a hundred hostages underground. Like the fact that Netanyahu right. has gone forward with this aggressive of a bombing campaign, knowing that still a hundred of his citizens are still being held underground. Yeah. Like that's wild to me. That is so reckless. It's outrageously <sighs> reckless to have done this. Do you think, do you think that by keeping them, Hamas is hoping that this appeals to like the longer big guy versus a little guy situation. Oh God. Uh, big guy versus a little guy situation. Hamas being the little guy in this case. And I'm putting that in quotes, like do, do might that be 
like thinking about the international community and how everyone, you know, am I making sense? (laughs) I feel like I'm rambling. Yeah, you are. You are. I mean, I think I think in these situations, you know, what everyone wants to do, you know, especially us pundits, you and I uh, (laughs) try to get in the head of the people who are involved in. I know punditing um, Hmm. and figure out what's their thought process. What's their strategy? What's the, you know, what are the motivating factors going on? And I'm sure I I actually, well, you can't really, but at the same time, the hostage situation is such a complicated dimension, mostly because so much of the evidence that has been collected about what happened on October 7th suggests that, Hamas really didn't think they were going to get as far as they got and they didn't think they were going to succeed as much Mm. as they did. So it's very possible that this hostage thing was kind of like a last minute, like very disorganized, you know, several people sort of working independently in their cell. were like, yeah, we're going to grab these people and take them back without much thought and time put into like, hey, does this make sense? Like, what's our long game? What's going to happen here? Uh, and but it it's now a big piece on the board. So I think the, the hostage situation has some benefits for Hamas in that the Israeli public is going to continue to put pressure on Netanyahu and Netanyahu's government to bring homeless people alive, period. And every one of them that dies yeah. is going to be something that is impossible for him to ignore and walk away from politically. Because. He has made the choice to be well, as aggressive yeah. as possible with no regard for their safety mm-hmm. and their continued life. Now, the other side of this is I still, and I said this in episode one of our explainers, I want to know what Hamas has been asking for in exchange for these hostages. I'm incredibly curious. I suspect what Netanyahu is trying to do that is That hasn't been made ca- public? No. Now, what we've heard... Or I guess what you could piece together is, okay, the humanitarian ceasefires that have happened so far, the humanitarian aid opportunities, the Gazans who gathered at the southern border of Egypt, who who hold dual citizenship, um, who have been allowed to leave. You know, you could you could guess, you could conjecture that all of those have been part of the negotiating package, but that can't be right. I mean, to me, that can't be the whole thing. That can't possibly be the whole thing. And I'm very curious what it is Hamas is holding out for. Yeah. Same. Hmm. So anyway, if we're at, we're now at a table, we have Palestinian leadership there. We have Israeli leadership sitting there. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing we have to discuss is what happens to the hostages in an ideal world and the world that you and I have created for this outcome. They all get released uh, immediately and everyone is taken care of. Yes. The other dimension of this is the Palestinians would argue that hostages have been taken from their community as well, Uh, especially within the West Bank. There have been significant Israeli arrests and a lot of people detained without trial. Um, In particular, I mean, basically since the existence of those two communities, but more poignantly since October 7th, the number of arrests Mm. and our detentions without um, alleged cause has really skyrocketed. So it's possible that we are looking at a swap mm-hmm. of hostages, quote unquote, on both sides. Didn't that happen? The l- it did. Last time? It did happen. Question mark? As part of the last hostage release. Well, yeah. Can we pause and talk about that yes. for a second? Because Dig in. Yeah, because we haven't talked since then. So two things that I noticed about the hostage release that I guess I would love to hear your thoughts on, because I don't know if we talked about this, is... Um, 
some of the Israeli hostages when they got back being um, very vocal about the how they felt about the um, approach the government was taking. Um, so I'll say that. And then two, on the flip side, I started noticing that around the same time, Palestinians were also being released and reunited with families and things and such. Yep. Um, so that. Yeah. On the first piece, yeah. again, you know, I don't work for them. Uh, this is not a sponsored ad, but um, the New York Times has done really great reporting <laughs> on the hostages who have been released so far, those of them who've chosen to spoke out for the most part have been highly critical of Netanyahu's government's handling of uh, their entire exchange process. Um, yes, I think mm-hmm. they, they all have very interesting accounts. If you care to read them, I would definitely check those out. Uh, once again, bringing it back to the human experience aspect of what's happening here. You know, the governments can posture all they want, but those people were actually held by Hamas for a number of days, many of them, and they have stories to tell. And those, I think, are the accounts that are worth hearing of the experience. The second question that you threw in there was about the exchanges. So, yeah, that's one reason I wanted to bring that up as part of this political resolution to the crisis, because from the Palestinian perspective, I'm sure they feel like, well, a number of our people are being held and have been held traditionally without trial. And they're just being detained and held there and kept from their families and their livelihoods, et cetera, uh, with no real recourse. Because as we talked about in episode two, the Palestinian territories are just at their territories. They're not a country. So Palestinians do not have rights to a speedy trial or any real justice within the Israeli court system. Um, They are completely at the mercy of whoever happens to be running the show. And it's no. clear that uh, the Netanyahu government is taking advantage of their power and control to put pressure on Hamas by putting pressure on Palestinians who don't even live in Gaza. So that uh, I think a hostage swap or I should say a swap of detained <sighs> persons would probably have to be a part of whatever occurred as part of that political yes. resolution. Um, I'm going to go a little bit out of order here just because some of these things are going to be really long conversations. And I think this is something I should say too about any end of conflict. (laughs) It's so rare that the end of a conflict is okay. You know, it's the end of the conflict. We're all going to put our guns down and go home and we'll shake hands. And that's the end of that, you know, wash our hands all done. Exactly. Good game. Good game. What We're you done. Are usually talking about is a <laughs> no months, if not years long process of wrapping up a conflict. Years. And the golden example. So when I was at yeah. the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, I worked in um, the office of Africa Two, which at the time had been responsible for fourteen peacekeeping missions, because the vast okay. majority of peacekeeping missions around the world happened in Africa, uh, and. Mm. Sort of the golden standard for how those peacekeeping missions can occur, or I should say not peacekeeping so much, but post-conflict justice, um, which is now called transitional justice. But at the end of a conflict, which we'll get to in this one also, you have to have some kind of justice process because communities in many cases have committed atrocities against each other. They've suffered atrocities together and you just want people to go back to living next to each other side by side. Uh, with like literally no acknowledgement of what occurred. Uh, see the American Civil War, especially in the South. 
you have slave owners Ooh. and freed slaves living right next to each other. And we just hope that no one's going to pick up arms again and start murdering each other, you know, or start oppressing people all over again. Yeah, MBD. Uh, I would argue we had a massively failed Boom. process called Reconstruction, and it did not go well. At we completely all. failed that part of it, the transitional justice aspect. Yeah. Big fat F. Hence, Huge F. the seeds for a lot of the conflict we see in the American society today. We never healed from the Civil War. That happened 200 years. Like, we're still not better. So no, it's really important to get this right as much as you can. And the golden standard for quote unquote getting it right uh, for better or worse is South Africa. So the truth and what? reconciliation that happened within South Africa. Yeah. Okay. All right. No, no, no. You're, you're answering the question that was already forming in my head. It's almost like you knew. Um, well. <laughs> No, uh, but South Africa was for a long time considered the gold standard for handling those truth and reconciliation aspects, um, bringing communities together to address the wrongs committed against them and getting them to continue to live together or move forward together in quote unquote peace, or at least to the absence mm. of conflict. You can argue about whether or not one equals the other. Uh, so, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so anyway, the point I wanted to make there is just like, this is a thing that's going to take a really long time to wrap up. It's not like, oh, it took us 90 days to get here. It'll take us 90 days to wind it down. Nah, it will take, I would think this whole process would probably take at least 10 years to resolve itself. If it ended today, I'd say 10 years from today. At least. Yeah, at least. All right. So cool. anyway, uh, we got to talk about- So that's about, political, huh? Well, that's not all mm -hmm. political. We got to talk about borders. Ooh. You oh, you and I don't need to get into borders because I have absolutely no idea what the hell they would do to redraw the borders of the Palestinian territories. Also, uh, see also one of our episododes where we talked about different state solutions, right? Yes, ma'am. Episode two, everybody wants a piece. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that means we get into elections because in this theoretical discussion, there is no more Hamas. Therefore, there needs to be a governing body in the Gazan Strip. And so the Gazans need mm -hmm. to hold elections at some point and elect a new government so that there is someone to sit at the table and represent them on their behalf. Uh, and then on top of that, there has to be some kind of broader agreement, ideally about a one or two state solution to this whole rigmarole. Um, it's also possible we get to a no state solution. Um, but I think that has some really unique implications for international partners. And I don't think that we're in that particular environment yet, because basically, if there's a no state solution, that means a third party has offered to take in all Palestinians from everywhere, Ooh. which is a huge question group. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Which which inspired the question. Last no state solution. How did that go? Do you know? Do you have one? I know this is a. If you can pull this out your memory, wow. Yeah, well, I think the closest we've gotten to that in modern memory would be Somalia because Somalia collapsed as a country and we have yet, I mean, there are pieces of former Somalia that have created some semblance of order and have been lobbying okay. for official recognition as independent countries for like 20, 30 years now. We, the international community, have refused to recognize them as independent countries. Mm -hmm. but it's certainly not like the quote unquote unified Somalia that existed before their breakdown. Mm. But technically Somalian people are considered 
They are considered stateless people. They are considered stateless people, even though they have a state question mark. They don't have a state. Their no. country collapsed. It completely Where are collapsed. They? That was why Where we went live? into Mogadishu. They live in the territory formerly known as Somalia, but they don't have an internationally recognized government. Oh, yep. Wow. Okay. And they're they're not doing great. (laughs) Well, we don't really know because people don't be talking about Somalia that much. You know, I think it depends on where you are. Well, the fact that ain't nobody talking about it, child. (laughs) That's something. People aren't talking about it because people have a short memory and, and, and we have a short capacity for long-term suffering and destitution. Say that again. You know, people don't want to hear about it for that long. I am people. I, I'm sorry. I mean, if that, if we did, then, then no one would stop ever talking about Haiti. That you can't do anything yeah. about. No, that's what I'm saying. And it, it's tough. It is tough to continue to ride the ride of this long-term suffering that will be televised when you are not empowered to act, it's almost as if like you're it's self-harm at a point to continue to expose yourself to this stuff when there is literally not a lot that you can do to materially impact the day to day slash the outcome. I mean, I'm going to I'm and I hate that. I don't know. That's just how I feel. <laughs> no, you're, I think you're very right. And I think especially as a person who used to eat, sleep and breathe international relations, but specifically international conflicts. Yeah. You could do a lot of damage to yourself by sort of swimming in these waters permanently, you know, without a, without taking a break. Um, because our brains don't know the difference oftentimes between, you know, Oh, this is happening there and it's bad. And it's happening right here in my body and it's bad. And God forbid you yourself have lived through any kind of significant crisis caused by external factors. It's going to bring up all of that feeling of, I don't have control. I'm not safe. My home is not going to be my home anymore. You know, maybe I've lost people that I really cared about all of those things because it's, that is the condition of, of conflict. And as much as we want to know, and we have this desire to know more, as we said at the beginning, you can't really do anymore. There's like not more that is within your power to do with the exception of specific things. So there are things that people can be doing. Again, if you're interested in this, please go back and listen to the last 30 minutes of Everyone Wants a Peace. Mm-hmm. I have very specific recommendations for how you can be advocating effectively for the Palestinians and those affected by what's happening. I would also say the Israeli public, Israeli citizens have a lot of control over what's happening right now. I know maybe this seems weird to people, but having lived in Israel and experienced firsthand what that democracy looks like and feels like and how it operates, the Israeli public is incredibly informed. They are very vocal. They are huge advocates when they think something has gone amiss to the point that Israel is one of the only countries that has former prime ministers that have gone to jail and been prosecuted for crimes. Most of our world leaders would never be brought up on charges by their home government. Uh, you know, we got a little bit of drama like that happening in the U.S. right now. So, oh, uh, what I'll say is I think. <laughs> exactly. I'm about to the say. The Israelis oh. do have. I, I, this is one reason I'm like, I'm. you know, people maybe are like, oh, Netanyahu's going to get away with it. He's not going to get away with it. The Israelis will crush him. He will be crushed by the time this ends, which is also why he has no, incentive to draw it out as long so. as he can. Oh, they were yelling at him. <laughs> I'm like, I did mm-hmm. poke my ear into some of those hostage, you know, things. They were yelling and at he him. He is persona non <laughs> They were not happy. Period. 
He is not, he's not going to come back from this. The Israelis are like, are going to hold him accountable. And that is a thing for which I honor them. Absolutely. Like take this man to task, roll him under the bus. He has more than earned it. Uh, anyway, getting back to the political discussion here, the <laughs> next thing I brought up, uh, the final thing I have there under political is trials. So this now feeds into the post-conflict justice aspect because theoretically some people are going to have to be oh. held responsible for what occurred both on the Israeli side and on the Palestinian side or Hamas, I should say. Uh, and so it's highly likely that there are going to have to yep. be some high level trials, um, possibly in the international criminal court, but more likely it'll just happen within their individual justice system. Well, on the Palestinian side, it might have to be the international criminal court because they don't have an internationally recognized government to hold those trials. Yet another issue that comes up with this status. So that's the end of the political dimension. That is also where we get like a document that would be called the Palestinian-Israeli Peace Agreement of 2024, blah, blah, blah. Because it's happening this year. Uh, and Come on. Dare to dream. Ojalá. Okay, so then we get to dimension number three, which is the social dimension. And this includes mm -hmm. humanitarian aid and development aid, which are going to be critical mm. in Gaza for rebuilding. Uh, it is desperately needed already because, as we pointed out before, that place has been completely raised to the ground. And even before that, their infrastructure was practically non-existent. So hopefully the end of any agreement would come with a ton of aid. I think this is one way that Israel could balance out the scales a little bit. I mean, as much as we never want to suggest that people can sort of pay their way out of accountability, the fact is, it is going to cost a lot of money to rebuild Gaza. Uh, and that is something that the Israeli government could provide that would make a huge difference, like sooner rather than later. If not them, then who? So like, as you were talking, so I'm taking notes. Oh, no, you are not. My brain is a sieve. But I wrote down. I am, I swear. Oh I am. God. Like, I'll show you. I'm taking yeah. notes. I wrote down the four dimensions. I wrote down DDR. <laughs> like, Because otherwise I won't remember. I'm sleepy. I um, might call but this I am waking up. DDR. Oh yes, you should. Um, I like that. I like that. Uh, the rebuild will be sponsored by Hoomst. Is literally the thing that I typed while you were talking. I'm like, who is sponsoring the rebuild? Because I know who's helping sponsor the fight. I think <laughs> in my ideal world, this dream world of conflict resolution that you and I are building together in this conversation, uh, I want the Israelis to pay for it. And I want us in America to pay for it because yeah. we are the ones who paid for all those bombs that were dropped on them. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We broke it. Let's, Cute. you know, we buy Perf. it. Done. Okay. okay. <laughs> we did. So I would love for us <laughs> to chip in heavily uh, and make this right as much as possible financially. Um, there's nothing wrong with reparations being paid to those who were done wrong. And that's a lot of Palestinians. So that would cost a lot of money. Uh, the other aspect of this is so reparations in general. I know reparations for all. This is <laughs> a pro good reparations for all podcast. People. We are Off. hardcore pro. Uh, and if you yes, don't know is. why, you clearly have not Googled <laughs> us. OK. Um, <laughs> nope. The other category is there's a big difference between aid and investment. Oh. Humanitarian aid is immediate life-saving support. 
We have to have doctors on the ground. We have to do first aid. People are bleeding out because of lack of basic supplies. Development aid. Okay, now that we've stopped bleeding out, we got to put in some basics, you know, some roads. We need water infrastructure. We got to start rebuilding some of the buildings. Let's make a hospital. So we've got doctors, but now they need a place to practice in. Let's build that hospital. Investment helps there be a sustainable and prosperous Palestinian economic engine that eventually hopefully can become self-sustaining on its own without additional external intervention. Israel has had immense success because of the technology boom. You know, they were on the cutting edge of technological innovation in the region. They still continue to be. They are one of the major tech hubs in the world, despite being one of the world's smallest countries. And I would love to see some of that prosperity pop up on the Palestinian side since they are right next to each other and, you know, could potentially also be benefiting from all of that boom and technology. There's no reason they couldn't. Then I get to some of the trickier Hmm. parts. So this is also a little bit political. There's a lot of bleed through in a lot of these categories, but I'm sure you all will have noticed. But for the sake of, you know, clarity, I'm trying to work with them under these specific dimensions. So the next thing to consider under the social dimension would be the refugees and the internally displaced persons created by not only the bombing, but by the previous diaspora of the Palestinian people because of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict over the last 60 years. Who gets to come home? Where do they get to come home to? And what do they get if Mm. they can't come home? Right. So those are some additional real big questions. You're thinking faces on what's that? What's going on? So the thing that caught my ear was this whole economic thing for the Palestinians because I hadn't actually thought about that before at all. I had never considered what the Palestinians were like doing for money. And I'm putting that in quotes. Like we think about countries as like you are a main exporter, manufacturer of X, Y, Z. Your GDP is supported by boom, boom, pow. And I had literally never thought until 30 seconds ago what they were doing. Like, what was that? For them. And like, what does that even look like for a three, a a territory, a a non-state? I forget the exact term. but Yeah, yeah. I mean, so a lot of the work that the Gazans have been doing is driven by the Israeli economy uh, in this really kind of maybe unexpected mashup. So a lot of uh, Palestinians work on Israeli farms. They do farm labor. A lot of them also Mm -hmm. work in construction and other trades within Israel. So they have to get um, permission. They have to get passes to allow them to leave their respective territory, enter Israel for a set amount of time, work on the local economy, and then go back to their, their place. One kind of exception for this, and one place that the crackdowns since October 7th have been really doing a lot of damage is in um, the West Bank, where quite a few Palestinians are making a living from agriculture on their own traditional, like family owned farms. So they have cash crops like oil, Mm. um, especially olive oil. There are large, long olive groves traditionally in the West Bank that have been worked by some of these Palestinian families for a very, very long time, like decades and decades and decades. Um, And a lot of them have been barred Mm. from access to their olive trees during the harvest period, which is going to completely decimate them economically as well. So this is another way that the Israeli state is able to leverage their control over the physical spaces that separate them 
um, in ways that maybe go a little bit unnoticed mm-hmm. um, by people who aren't who aren't watching. They were unnoticed by me until just now. I hadn't even given a thought to what you know, what, what they did with, again, I can't keep thinking about it other than what they did for money. And so it sounds like they're, what is it? Agrarian? Is that the word? It's agrarian, but it's also very like, um, labor and unskilled labor oriented. There's not a lot of, especially in Gaza, you know, there's not a lot of, um, sort of internal Palestinian industry, Palestinian driven industry. There just isn't enough wealth for Mm. that per se. And the quality of other right. services, you know, their access to education, access to tertiary education, which will create a cycle of poverty, you know, from which people aren't able to escape, which also makes them even more dependent on Israel for economic, you know, success in advance. You know, so there's it's kind of this self-fulfilling yeah. cycle to weird some extent, messed yeah. up cycle. Yeah. And ideally, I, in this halcyon future we've created. And this halcyon future we're creating, I would love to see an economically independent Palestine, you know, that does not have to do what they're currently doing. Same. Yeah. Let them make their own money, please. Thanks. Okay. So that's Ugh. refugees and IDPs in the final category through under social. And we're doing it last because it's my favorite. It's the one I want to talk about the most um, is okay. that justice. So post-conflict justice, transitional justice, my absolute fave for those who don't know my undergraduate degrees in post-conflict justice. I'm obsessed. Mm-hmm. It's one reason I wanted to work at the UN. Uh, so I want to give mm-hmm. you first a definition of what post-conflict justice is so that we're all on the same page. Mm-hmm. So transitional justice includes processes that could be both judicial and non-judicial, including truth-seeking prosecution initiatives, reparations, and various measures to prevent the recurrence of new violence, including constitutional, Mm. legal and institutional reform, the strengthening of civil society, memorialization efforts, cultural initiatives, preservation of archives, and the reform of history education. So it's a a long definition, I know, but Mm. basically post-conflict justice is all about, all right, it's over, quote unquote. Now what? How do we pick up and build? It's the what do we do now of it all. And it's my absolute favorite part because yeah. it's been done so differently so mm-hmm. many places. Mm-hmm. You literally can look up the end of yeah. any of the conflicts, like I said, that happened in the 90s. You get three totally different answers. Rwanda is very different than what happened in former Yugoslavia is very different than what happened in Somalia. And those all happen within like five years of each other, basically. And I think it's fascinating that each one kind of rolled out completely differently from everybody else. Do they all go through this framework? Because I feel like in the process of defining it, you're giving yourself like checkpoints. Like is truth seeking, preventing recurrent violence, history, education, reform, are those actually like associated with tactics and actual things that you do as a process of resolving resolution? Absolutely. Yay. Okay, Absolutely. cool. So Just wanted to make the, sure I was understanding yeah, that. Yes. <laughs> So one of the big things that came out of the South African reconciliation process um, after, you know, Nelson Mandela came to power is you get these truth and reconciliation commissions. And basically it's community driven people getting together formally, informally to discuss what happened in their specific piece of the conflict and come up with resolutions. And this also got played out in Rwanda. Um, if they, if, I mean, they were hugely important in resolving the crisis in Sierra Leone, in Liberia, 
Um, and those are places where you're talking about really catastrophic um, violence, um, really catastrophic violence between communities, stuff that you, you know, see on TV mm -hmm. and Blood Diamond or, you know, Hotel Rwanda. And you think to yourself, there's no way anybody could possibly come back after that and live next to their neighbor. And they did. And they are. Mm. Uh, and mm. I think that that's, you know, not to get too woo woo about it, but to me, it's kind of miraculous when we are able to move forward with each other. You know, I think it's easy to be stunned by the amount of damage that we can do to each other as a species, but I'm always more impressed by our ability to rebuild afterward. Yeah. It's constantly stunning to me that we are able to do that. As bad as the things has been, somehow yeah. we are always able to come back. And one of the big things in this context, I think truth seeking would be really important. So some of these things have come up in some of the other dimensions, you know, like you said, prosecution initiatives, who's going to jail and why? Who are mm -hmm. we holding responsible for what has occurred? You know, and who right. gets to decide that? Most successful yeah. transitional justice processes yeah. have been community driven. I think it's really important to let individuals take a bite sized chunk of what occurred instead of trying yeah. to make everyone responsible for the whole thing. Number one, because you're going to, by necessity, yes. leave out certain narratives, which means some people aren't going to get to participate, which means some people yeah. have not been given an incentive to not go back to conflict in the future. Anytime you leave people out of the rebuilding process, what you've done is sow the yes. seeds of the next conflict. Oh, you have to. You have to give people a say and f have them feel empowered in whatever solution is put forth. Or at least heard, like even if they don't necessarily get what they want, at least I find heard. that your average decent human being, if they feel heard, key word, feel heard, they have to feel heard. If they feel heard, you can kind of like deescalate the situation. <laughs> That's absolutely yeah. correct, Fallon. It's, it has borne out in a bunch of the studies of the way these conflicts have come together afterwards, after the fact. That's so often you look at these situations, like I said, Sierra Leone, you know, Rwanda, and you think there's no way that this is going to be able to continue without further violence on one side or the other. And the fact of the matter is so mm -hmm. many people just need to be heard. They need to be heard and validated. And the yeah. studies they've done of these truth and reconciliation efforts afterward, so much of it is just about getting a chance to tell your truth and tell what occurred to you and look at the yeah. person who did it and say, this mm -hmm. is what you did. And this is what it did to me without further violence in these communities. People have been able to rebuild mm -hmm. and move forward. And I, it blows my mind every time how hard we work as a world, as individuals to not take accountability for the harm we've done. When in fact, the only way forward is that accountability process. Allowing people to speak and be seen and be heard. You have to walk through the pain to not become like calcified by it. You have to like walk through it, get all up in there, snuggle up under that motherfucker like I'm in this soft ass onesie to figure exactly where it hurts and why it hurts. <laughs> and then once you figure that out, you can get rid of it and move on. Effort should always be local and community driven, but I think there's value yeah. in having them witnessed internationally because that adds in another layer of accountability for the truth telling that has occurred. Fix it where you broke it. Y'all were bombing. It was everywhere. 
fix it where you broke it. <laughs> you break it, you buy yes. it. And also <laughs> fix it where you broke it. You did it publicly. Yes. Undo it publicly. Please and thanks. <laughs> yeah. This. This exactly. It's so critical. And it, and it it's such it's a through line in these post-conflict justice processes that have gone well, you know? Yeah. I think the only other big thing I call out here is the importance of reform of history education, especially in this conflict, because we called out in our very first explainer. And I think in all of the other ones since, you know, everyone has a dog in the fight when telling this story. And I think it's really important to be very intentional and clear and balanced in the way that the story is told to the next generation moving forward. Because these stories, these narratives <sighs> are one of the reasons that these conflicts continue past one generation and onto another. Because you have grandma sitting here saying this and that and whispering it into your ear, or you have uncle so-and-so who fought in the battle, who, you know, is, is thinking what he's thinking. Mm -hmm. So the next piece I want to bring in, and this is also why I kind of made spirituality its own dimension here, because we are talking about a quote unquote Jewish democratic yeah. state. And we are talking about an almost exclusively Muslim yep. population in both the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank. So it might be really important to get faith leadership involved in that sort of localized community driven reparation process. And there have been a lot of spiritual leaders in the past who have tried to do sort of independent yeah. or individualized um, peacemaking, reconciliation, community building projects in the past between the two communities. Most of those have not had as much official government and international support as they might have deserved. But I mean, you can just Google, you know, faith leaders, you know, peacekeeping Israel, and you will find tons and tons and tons of efforts by these groups. So I think there is probably going to have to be a spiritual dimension to this rebuilding um, mm -hmm. for better or worse. But I, I think that really obviously will be yeah. up to the yeah. Israelis and Palestinians involved to indicate to what extent they find that valuable and meaningful. But I, I think it will be really important, especially because we think of, you know, at least for the religious community within Israel, their connection to the land is based in their faith. And therefore, I think any resolution is going to have to include a faith component as well. So that's kind of what I came up with for an ideal outcome. Um, <laughs> That transitional justice process would take, that's mostly to me what I'm thinking about when I talk about this taking 10 years. The you decade. Know, yeah, no, because like, getting all yes. those things off the ground, figuring out who all going to be there and who all is invited is probably going to be the hardest part. The question that actually comes to mind because of the spiritual thing is, again, you know me, I want to know, give me a use case. When have spiritual leaders been involved in a peacekeeping process previously? I would like two examples, a good one and a bad one. Please and thanks. <laughs> you want two examples. <laughs> uh, this is very funny, by the way. Um, the, peace, so the, the religious community did play a role in the reconciliation efforts in post-conflict South Africa. They were very much wrapped into that mm -hmm. process because it's a highly religious country. And so having the faith leaders on board to sort of especially help moderate and mediate community discussions, because one big thing about justice, and I, first of all, I want to thank you, Fallon, for coming with me on this ride, because I know I've been so pedantic this episode, but I do love this stuff so much. It has my heart academically so much. Um, 
that you I'm can't engaged. You don't tell. These are real questions. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't write this down. Y'all, I just woke up from a nap. Like I'm barely here. <laughs> it's like <laughs> here we are for the DDR episode. Uh and I think one big thing I want people to take away is you don't tell somebody when they've had justice. They tell you when they've had it. And if you do not let people be the ones to indicate when they have gotten their due or when they have been made whole, you are never going to get to an acceptable outcome that is going to be long lasting and sustainable. And to that end, that's one reason why it's important to have interlocutors, important to have community members who are trustworthy, who are seen as legitimate sources of authority and accountability within a community already. And for a lot of communities worldwide, that's a faith leader. Hmm. Pass the collection plate. Yeah, that. (laughs) Very that. Yeah. So I just... I just love to say it so much because people are like justice. And I'm like, you don't get to tell anybody when they got justice. They tell you when they got it. Come on, singing um, the song of your people. one of the hallmarks of it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> then you want an example when faith leadership did not help. Right. Because I, I want, I'm trying to set the, the, the parameters. Yeah, you know, um, I'm going to throw out the United States post-Civil War. Faith leadership did not help at all in that reconstruction process. We, oh boy, as a descendant of formerly enslaved people, uh, we were pretty much entirely left out to dry by each and every major power broker at that time period. So no 40 acres, no mule. Yeah. They failed that one. Nathan. They didn't do it. Okay. Well, thanks. (laughs) Thanks for that. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think it was cute. And smart and apt to end on spirituality because ultimately I think war does a lot of things, but it definitely tests the endurance of your spirit, the human spirit. It absolutely tests your ability to empathize and in trying to resolve the conflict, forgive all of those things, no matter how you slice it, no matter what you think or how you believe those are spiritual things, because it is a humanly spiritual thing. It separates us from dogs. The fact that we can sit here and reason and wrestle with all of this stuff. I think the other tricky part of all of this is, you know, as a practitioner, scholar of transitional justice and transitional justice movements, there is a real debate ongoing about whether or not you can have both justice and peace at the same time at the ends of one of these things. Sometimes you have to sacrifice some portion of one or the other. So I guess one question I leave all of you with, dear listeners, uh, is which is more important to you on the macro and then which is more important to you on the micro? Are you leaning towards peace or are you leaning towards justice? And think about that question when it comes to the way you engage with discourse online and also in your personal lives, I would say, because in many cases, those two things are diametrically opposed. You can either have the one or the other sort of as absolutes, or you can have little pieces of each. But it's very rare in this world that with each other, we are able to get both things. Thank you for joining us for this discussion of a possible peace process between Israel and Hamas. Just a few notes on this episode since things have developed a bit since we first recorded the episode. 
Israel has publicly announced that they would be moving to a new phase of the war that would focus on targeting Hamas leaders, though it's unclear if that will lead to fewer civilian casualties. In addition, on December 29, 2023, South Africa initiated a case against Israel and the International Criminal Court based on a claim of genocide. As Israel is a signatory to the ICC, but not a state party, technically it does not fall under the jurisdiction of the court. Historically, the ICC has tried individuals, not countries, and it is still unclear which individuals will be named as perpetrators in the South Africa petition. Stay with us as the uh, situation continues to develop, and we'll see you next time. If you would like to support the show, you can do that on Patreon, or you can buy hats, mugs, t-shirts, and Public. If you are a current or former diplomat that would like to tell your story, you can email me at offdutydiplomat at gmail.com. Duty Diplomat is an oral memoir of my career in the Foreign Service. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love a review. Thanks for listening.